Hello, world singers. My name is Tyler. And my name is Brooke. And this is Cosmere Cosmere Conversations. Conversations. We are back for episode 15. The big one five. Oh my gosh, 15. Thank you all so much for staying with us and sharing with your friends and, you know, keeping the Cosmere conversations going. We have a jammed packed episode, an episode that has a real possibility of becoming two episodes. We'll see how it goes in the recording studio, but we are going to be looking at the characters of Oathbringer and their arcs that they took throughout the uh, the book. I think that we, as researching, putting this together, really discovered some nice themes and consistencies throughout all the character arcs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if it, it was necessarily learning anything new, but it definitely emphasized, as we were researching this, just how fantastic this book is and what just a masterpiece of writing um, Brandon Sanderson has here that all of these characters fit into a central theme and sort of act in the exploration of that theme in a multifaceted way. It's really pretty stunning when you start to really look at it deeply. I think that... There are a couple of moments that really make this clear that we've already called out and we've had, you know, uh, fans or just random people on the interwebs pointing out some of these moments as their favorite moment, whether it's uh, Teft swearing the ideals or, or Dalinar refusing to become Odium's champion. Like, these are things that often everybody is catching And then as we are kind of looking at all of them at once, I think that we've just really come to see how clearly every single part of these character arcs are crafted and created. And it's given me a lot of like further insight than I had previously yes. had. Yeah, absolutely. That all of these characters are simultaneously 100% true to themselves and true to, you know, what we've seen of them previously and yet also fit into the themes of this specific book and kind of all, like you said, fit into a larger picture, like these little puzzle pieces. And yet they exist by themselves as well. It's really beautiful. Let's move on to the characters themselves, because Oathbringer really is the story of Dalinar. So let's start with Dalinar. Yeah, absolutely. Is it okay if we start with a quote that I think sort of exemplifies a a theme that all of these characters uh, exhibit? I think that would be great. And to kind of keep this quote in mind throughout this episode, as well as on any rereads or when you're thinking about Oathbringer itself. Yeah, absolutely. Quote, I will take responsibility for what I have done. Dalinar whispered. If I must fall, I will rise each time a better man. End quote. I think that this is when he is refusing odium. Uh, Is that, that correct? 
Um, I, I believe this is right in the heat of his uh, Unity chapter or, or right yeah. around there. Uh, and it's a powerful moment uh, as he's saying things like, to Odium, you, you cannot take my pain. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, I think this is when Odium is saying, it's okay, it wasn't you, just make me responsible and like let me take over. And this is when Dalinar says that, like, no, I'm, I'm not going to let you do that like I need to own up for my own actions. So it's a beautiful quote. It's said by Dalinar and Dalinar is going to be the first individual that we looked at. What we are planning on doing is kind of trying to take some of the major moments from the character arcs and then hopefully as we talk about each of them you'll see this pattern uh, developing that we think is is really so incredible. So the book begins with our, our gang, for the most part, uh, at the city of Urithiru, and we had the civilian population, or the people who didn't join Dalinar and the fighting that happened at the end of Words of Radiance, have now shown up, and one of the very first things that happens in the book is a wedding. Not at the end of a story, but just starting yeah. us off with I was a, very surprised it like happens very suddenly. Right like yeah. right off the bat you're like, oh okay, we're we're we're, we're doing it. that. Okay, yeah, let's exactly. go. That was one of the first like key signs of just like this book isn't holding back. Like we were just doing this right now. Yeah. We, it's a middle book benefit like some people talk yeah, about the middle yeah, book yeah. problems but this is a just huge benefit no need to set anything up just pick up where you left off and go and they go with a wedding that is hugely problematic in world for dalinar uh it is a violation of traditions in voranism for this wedding to happen uh both dalinar and uh navani previously married and well and she was married to his brother so the way they think of it is that Dalinar and Navani are siblings yes and that is more the prohibition than necessarily the previously married thing um, yeah I, I don't I didn't mean to imply that but just the yes the the sibling relationship the idea that you know once bonded even in marriage, as family, you are kind of family first. And so then it would be like marrying a sibling. And Dalinar receives uh, criticism from his ardents, his personal ardents, including his uh, personal close friend. And Um, it's something that starts to alienate him or weaken his power as a leader, um, right? Because Originally, people are already doubting him because of his vision, saying that he's not fit to rule. And then now with this blatant flouting of convention and religion, he has even more rumblings of people saying that he should not be in a place of power. You know, who is he? What is he doing? Uh, He could potentially be dangerous. It's certainly something that the church is worried about and the church hierarchy is worried about. I think that after that or outside of the church primarily this is a criticism that is used by dalinar's opponents as just a criticism that they can use not something necessarily that anybody truly believes in we have talked previously about just kind of the general alethi dismissal of true uh religious faith and it's more uh certainly the the people who are in it the ardents not 
trying to criticize them, but for the politicians and the leaders that we have seen, these people are primarily using this as like a attack against Dalinar just so they can attack him and not necessarily because they believe it in their deep hearts. I mean, sure, but like religion feeds into the culture and going against your culture in such a profound way is going to have ramifications. And one of the first ramifications and actually what introduced one of the first theories between you and I uh, happens very briefly after the wedding, if not immediately after. It's very soon after. And that is Dalinar remembers the name of his wife. He had previously had lost all connection to his wife. And even when someone said her name it came out as a series of whispers or yeah it's just like air rushing through his mind he just like can't hold on to the word so very shortly after he and navani get married he suddenly is able to remember his previous wife again and we find out that her name is evie or maybe evie and this led to our first theory that didn't really pan out yeah but, but it was fun to theorize about for a, a while fun theory so we thought that this was kind of like a a moment that was hinting at a terrible part of dalinar's boon or his curse excuse me where the curse could have been specific to dalinar's wife for example right he, just the idea of dalinar's wife whoever he is married to exactly so we i was fearful uh that Dalinar's curse was basically you will forget everything about your wife. Yeah, so I was like so afraid that he was going to start forgetting Navani. I was like, no, not Navani. But that didn't end up panning out as a theory. It's just, (laughs) it all happened so fast. One of the things that we learn about Evie as a character is that she is from a region called Rira. And Rira is one of the weaker empires the kind of the well weaker. the alethi would think that they're weaker absolutely it's to, to the alethi <laughs> uh but from their perspective they're not a powerful military ally except yeah they're like kind of the opposite of the alethi actually they're like very peace loving um they don't wage war really they have a very uh sort of eastern philosophy as we would think about it, it especially because at this point Dalinar is at the pinnacle of making his name as a warrior. And the Blackthorn. Yes. Which, uh, those flashbacks are so funny when he's, like, sitting at dinner with, you know, his brother and everyone is being much more polite and civilized than they have been. And he is just really chafing against that. And then to make matters worse, this woman and her brother, you know, who he's supposed to marry, are all about peace and love. And <laughs> and this is an interesting time because the kind of the largest aspects of the conquest for a united Elithkar have been achieved but not completely so they are in the middle of the war but it's also like the war's big parts are over and there's just they feel like they're kind of in like the cleanup period 
Yeah, they're just like hammering out details with a few additional groups. Um, But this leads Dalinar to sort of a crisis in that he feels useless. And he's kind of like, you know, if Gavilar is the brains and I'm the sword, well, there's no need for the sword anymore. So what do I do? Who am I? He's kind of losing his identity, wondering what his place is in this new world that he's worked so hard to build. And then he's kind of written out of it. Yeah. And that's a, you know, a quality that is not unique to Dalinar in literature or film or anything else about the warrior who after the war is kind of pushed aside for the politicians. It's just so interesting to watch it happen to Dalinar since we know he is going to become the politician in the the main Stormlight Archive timeline and we get to witness how he got to that point and he got to that point by basically being what he criticizes you know his sons or Sadius or other people for being uh, in in the main timeline by the time he's the politician he's criticizing people often for acting in the same way that he used to act as a younger man. Yeah, and then I think we see the extension of that theme in Oathbringer. He really puts the pedal to the metal on trying to be only the diplomat, and he kind of tries to erase all of his aggression or tendency to war in favor of that diplomacy. And in the end, of course, we see that he sort of brings those two things together and realizes that he can still be himself while being a diplomat. And I think that one of the interesting aspects about his wife, Evie, that's going to continually come up through Dalinar's arc is how just unbelievably kind Evie is, how compassionate she is, and how much Evie is willing to sacrifice herself her traditions her comfort for Dalinar and for their wedding uh, and their their life together as a, a married couple but Dalinar never makes that easy on Evie uh, even you know after they have high points and, and good points in their life uh, birth of Adolin is depicted in one of the flashbacks and that like that's a very beautiful moment but Evie is never really treated well by Dalinar at uh, any yeah. point. I, I would not say that it is in any way a relationship that anyone should imitate. It uh, doesn't, it really doesn't reflect well on Dalinar at all, um, which is sad. We like grow to like him so much and then to see him in such a negative light. Evie is kind of the antithesis of Dalinar in a lot of ways, partially just their cultures are opposite. You know, she is very um, expressive and affectionate and uh, bubbly and friendly. It's and one of the things that Dalinar uh, kind of chafes at or or has a slight anger towards Adolin, who yeah. is so much more emotional and affectionate and is, you know, will run up and, and hug Aunt Navani to him or or just have a much more kind of and he's got like a smile on his face he's more expressive than most alethi are that's evie's characteristics coming in and adolin and it's something that dalinar doesn't agree with 
Uh, and so I just, I found that relationship very heartbreaking, yeah. but also very telling and very important and significant to crafting the character of Dalinar. Because of course, the other thing that we're going to discover in flashbacks with Dalinar is the death of uh, Evie at Dalinar's hands as he is destroying the, is it the city of the Rift? Or, or the rift is I the geographic. I think so. No, I think it's both. Okay. I think. Well, the giving giving the hint as to the geography, uh, the city is built literally down into uh, a rift. Or, yeah, it's or in like a, a canyon, sort of. Absolutely. I, I think that's a good way to look at it and kind of how I envision it in my mind is maybe not a Grand Canyon, but definitely a canyon yeah. and just kind of built into the walls. And one of the things that, of course, is going to be so devastating to a society like that built into the walls of a canyon is fire. Uh, and that. Yeah, because I think all of the buildings are described as sort of being up on stilts. All of their structures are propped up yeah. and it's mostly wood um, as well as some like swinging wooden and rope bridges things like that for passageways so yeah fire is devastating and this is going to be of course the way that Dalinar achieves his goals of subduing uh, the rift is by mass destruction through fire including uh, where unknowingly he d- he is not aware of this, but he goes to a it's like a a prison or or barred door kind of where uh, he thinks people are being kept. Yeah, I think it's the dungeon under. I don't know if it's a castle or if yeah. it's just like the mansion of the ruling house, but he thinks that his enemy is there, and this is sort of the key point where we see Dalinar being prepped as a weapon of odium. He is completely possessed by the thrill. 100%. Um, yeah, 100% possessed by the thrill. Um, throws, what, a grenade or like a, a firebomb of some kind. Yeah, I wouldn't say grenade just because I don't want to uh, connect it too much to like a fabriel, but definitely like a, a firebomb. Uh, of some type of Molotov cocktail. Sure, yeah. Um, And then later he realizes that Evie was there and she's like pleading for surrender or something, right? Like she went to try to help Dalinar achieve his goals. So Dalinar kind of throws this Molotov cocktail uh, into the dungeon or, or into this safe house and then goes on to find the ruler of the rift uh and he he tells them you know whoever you had put there for safekeeping i want you to know that i burned them alive and then the the leader starts laughing maniacally uh and that's when it's revealed that dalinar had killed his own wife who had traveled to the city to beg the leaders of the rift to surrender to Dalinar basically well initially she's trying to talk him out of it initially yeah yeah she's like Dalinar no please show compassion show mercy yeah 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 and he basically says no I'm gonna go off and kill these people 
uh, and you need to kind of be in your place, you know, just don't. Don't mess anything up. Don't mess anything <laughs> up. And then he leaves and she, like in the night, goes to the city and I assume basically came to say like, my husband's not going to back down. Like you need to yeah. surrender. Yeah. And that. So sad. Yeah. I mean, it's going to haunt him throughout the rest of his life. Yeah. We see the downfall and his lowest points. We talked about that in our kind of Oathbringer top five moments. Yeah, I don't want to cry again by quoting anything, but it is the moment when his alcoholism is at the worst and he is going through uh, just copious amounts of wine uh, to the point where he thinks people are like stealing from him or limiting and it's the complete opposite like people are giving him more wine than ever and he just has drank it all and exactly yeah and so he's screaming at people and then little Renarin comes in and gives him a, a vial basically or a little you know a little handle of alcohol Uh, And he just breaks down, like, understanding his own weakness in that moment. And that's when he's going to kind of turn the page. Yeah, that's his breaking point. And he resolves to, he's like, I have to do something, obviously. Something's got to change. And that's when he decides to seek out the Night Watcher, um, which is actually inspired by Evie. This seeking of the old magic is something that the Rearin culture Uh, is much more about than the Alethi. The Alethi kind of frown on it. And he's like, well, I don't know what else to do, so we're going to do this. And he kind of goes surreptitiously, like goes around the side, sort of pretending like he's going to another place and makes this stop at the Night Watcher. And we finally get to see the Night Watcher, which was an exciting moment after hearing so much about her for so long. She is one of the, you know, significant players that's in the background that we know about, we know is super powerful, we suspected for a long time she was like an equal to the Stormfather, and finally we get to see the Night Watcher. And she's creepy. She's definitely not I think she's so creepy. In, I would like, opinion. previously I always imagined her as kind of like a sphinx. Like, just sitting somewhere in the forest, sort of, like, wise and mysterious. I could definitely see, you know, a Sphinx character of just hanging out and waiting for travelers, waiting for people to come by. And then, you know, the Sphinx right. would yeah. give them a riddle or something, and the Night Watcher gives them a boon and a curse. But she's actually this sort of naive creepy well do we want to forest spren yeah do we want to read we? from it yeah let's uh oh, it's so good so such a good description will you read this for us this quote about the night watcher sure quote the night watcher seeps from the darkness she was a dark green mist vaguely shaped like a crawling person two long arms reached out pulling her along as she floated above the ground Her essence, like a tail, extended far beyond her, weaving among tree trunks and disappearing into the forest. Indistinct and vaporous, she flowed like a river or an eel. The only part of her with any specific detail was her smooth, feminine face. She glided toward him until her nose was mere inches from his own, her silken black eyes meeting his. Tiny hands sprouted from the misty sides of her head. They reached out, taking his face and touching it with a thousand cold yet gentle caresses, end quote. 
super creepy. Her hands come out of her head. <laughs> and Ugh. she has this kind of like long flowing vaporous essence that's just kind of like tra- she doesn't really have a body it just kind of just yeah. like flows out behind her. I think her like non-humanoidness is so creepy and like surprising it subverts what we normally think of but then of course the night watcher is not gonna be the main entity or the most important entity that dalinar interacts with there because relatively quickly uh cultivation makes herself known yes so this whole theory that we've been talking about about the boon and the curse of the night watcher and how that played out for dalinar it was actually 100 percent not even correct because it turns out cultivation did something completely different takes away his memory and sort of sets him up to potentially be uh, a tool of odium i'm just saying i think that cultivation is around throughout everything and is playing the hands that she can play against odium but she is just probably weaker or can't fight in the same fashion that like honor would have so i i think that this was this as well as a couple of other moments that we'll talk about were really specific moments of cultivation choosing to intercede against odium yeah absolutely throughout oathbringer we also see Dalinar developing his powers as a bondsmith. I feel like he's one of the Knights Radiant that progresses the fastest. Um, He, like, sprouts powers left and right in this book. Um, He really does, like, everything. It seems like he becomes uh, one of the most diverse and mm -hmm. well-used or uh, Radiance who uses their powers the most. Yes. Where everybody else seems to kind of be specializing in one or training I wonder if that's because he's older and like more mature you know what I mean and that he's able to like not have quite as many hang-ups as the younger characters do I think that that is definitely one part of it and I it would be interesting to see if there was I mean I know Yasna is like slightly older than Shalon but like she's not old uh but it would be interesting to see if there was another radiant who did have some age on them some experience because i definitely think you're correct think about all the difficulties and hardships that dalinar has gone through that kaladin is in the middle of going through you know for kaladin he's not at a point where he's fully accepted his past and kind of gone through the years of abuse and psychological damage that Dalinar has and then rebuilt himself from that moment into this new person like Dalinar's already done all of that over a period of you know a decade or more but Kaladin it's all fresh to him like the bridge runs were not that long ago yeah and he's still like figuring it all out he doesn't have as much perspective obviously Dalinar has years of perspective to give him that wisdom I also though wonder if part of what is helping or aiding Dalinar is the Stormfather. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably part of it. It'd be hard to say that, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with it, that he's bonded to one of the most powerful Spren. And let's remember that Bondsmiths only bond to the big Spren. 
throughout all of the Knights Radiant, the Bondsmiths always bond to the big three, which we have introduced and talked about more than once. Stormfather, Nightwatcher, and the Sibling. Those big three are the only, and there's only three Bondsmiths. So keep in mind that the Stormfather has been bonded before. And I don't think that many of, or any of the Spren that we currently see can say that. Other Spren of their type have been bonded. But like what I'm saying is like, I think in the past. Well, still. Sil was one of the only ones uh, from the description because she was like the daughter, right? Yeah. Yeah. So she was the first daughter. She was, she was born in the past and then kind of put into hiding. What I'm trying to say is that the Stormfather has a whole bunch of experience that he's bringing to the relationship as well. And so as he starts to remember, he's going to be remembering a lot more than necessarily uh, a, a Spren like Wendell would be. Sure, who are like doing it for the first time. Exactly. Also. Yeah. Yeah. One but of let's the talk most... about those powers because they're pretty cool. Yeah. One of the most interesting things that I think happens in Oathbringer is that we see that not only is there a resonance point in an individual knight's radiant between their surges, but there's also kind of a resonance point in between radiants of different orders. And we see that with Dalinar sort of supplementing or superpowering Shallan's power of her illusions and together they make this map that they use for their strategic meetings. Yeah, and I think that has it's it's hinted and said that it has something to do with Dalinar's connection power. That's capital C connection power. We have talked about that specifically in our Mistborn episode as there is a medal that allows for connection but dalinar either do we think it's a resonant point or or an aspect of spiritual adhesion but he he's able to i wouldn't say it would be spiritual adhesion because we know that spiritual adhesion is giving him the power to like speak different languages absolutely so that's definitely an aspect of connection showing up is this spiritual adhesion uh, and yeah, to- and I guess we should also back up and say, at least for me, I think this is the first time that it was brought to my attention that there are different levels of the surges as well. So it's not just surge of adhesion. There's physical adhesion, cognitive adhesion, spiritual adhesion, and all of those do something slightly different. Absolutely. So we have, it's like... When you learn basic math, uh, your addition and subtraction, division, multiplication, you think that you've kind of like, okay, I understand this stuff. I can right. do my times tables. And like, that's all the things you can do with numbers. <laughs> yeah. But then they like introduce exponents and exponential graphs and signs and cosines and trigonometry and calculus. And it just like you, a lot of people give up on math at, the, at those points. But at the same time, that's kind of what's happening with the powers that we are starting to understand is that like, okay, we were introduced and it was like plus and minus 
those were the two things that we yeah. had. And now it's like, oh, BT dubs, there's also like exponents. And yeah. each power actually or has like three powers. Shades of color, right? Like we thought it was just blue, but it's actually like you can have royal blue or cerulean or like there's a whole gradient of things and within just to that. Keep it close to the music theory, because we do know that music is the link. What is that? thing in music when it's like a counter harmony when you have the note that you are making and then there's I mean, a corresponding note that it creates as well that's like oh, on the opposite side of the spectrum do you know what i'm talking about i do but i don't know the word none of us are smart enough uh music people tell us what it is yeah right in absolutely help us out because that's kind of like what is going on is that there's just so much depth to the magical systems that we are really just figuring out. And Dalinar does this a bunch of times. So he has the ability to translate instantaneously. He has the ability to supplement or kind of connect his power to other Knight's Radiance power. He has a power that's shared with the Knight's Radiant, the Surge of Tension, which we see him use in, is it in Thalen City? Is it the first time that he goes to Thalen City? Yes. Yeah, and he he fixes the big archway, right? Yeah, I think it's a temple. Okay, that's right. And it's a broken temple, and then his failure politically like drives him to anger and he's like i can't do it i I can't do this i'm not this person i'm failing Mm -hmm. at everything and he's like but what i can do or you know what he believes he can do and eventually proves is i can fix this thing right here well and he hears he's he's like at the temple and he starts hearing something say unite them unite them unite them and he realizes he's hearing the stones, like the broken pieces of the temple, like call to him. And he rebuilds the temple. And that is going to be the moment that he he wins over uh, many people of Thalen City that eventually are going to join his alliance. And I thought that moment was so interesting because... In that part, they're always referred to as stones, like not rock, not anything else. And it just really made me think of the Shin and their like reverence of stones. And now Dalinar is like hearing the stones talk, which is sort of like the gods of stone that the Shin talk about. So I do wonder if that is connected in any way. That's interesting. I'm not 100% certain. And so I'm just going to move on. Uh, The... Kind of last aspect of Dalinar's character arc is obviously seen in the final battle and specifically in the chapter called Unity, where he really has a acceptance of his past self and his present self and also what he has to do in the future. Kind of all those things come together and it happens in a very brilliant moment uh, where he, he claps his hands together, merges the three realms, and recreates honor's perpendicularity, filling 
all the gemstones of the city uh, with light, and it's just a spectacular moment. I mean, well, in 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 that moment, if you think, you know, he's bringing the three realms together. And he's also bringing the three aspects of himself together, his past, his present, and his future, and accepting it all together. And that is really cool symmetry, I think. We took a good 30 minutes on (laughs) Dalinar. We had and have other characters to discuss. Are you ready to move on? Yeah. So Dalinar, let's uh, transition into his... His lovely wife. Yes, absolutely. Wife as of like page eight or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so they get married early on and their marriage is officiated by the Stormfather the storm So cool. Navani has always been, but definitely continues to be one of my favorite characters. I just think she is like so underrated. And when you actually think about who she is and what she does, especially in this book, man, she deserves a lot of appreciation that I don't think she gets from anyone either in the book or by the fans. Yeah, definitely in the book, she is, you know, in her younger life treated as the the queen and can be easily swept aside. Uh, but she has a brilliant mind. Yeah, she is incredibly smart. She has a very sophisticated understanding of politics and social interactions. She's able to um, facilitate those meetings with Dalinar. She plays a huge part in assisting him to be the diplomat that he's trying to be. And especially when he is having a rough time with all of his memories, she's basically running everything. She's supporting her husband. Her son dies and she like survives that through everything. Like she's just the epitome of the backbone behind it all. And one of the kind of quotes that we pulled that was defining in some way of Navani, was this said by her or about her? This is said by her and it's a super interesting moment, I think. It's Dalinar is indisposed because he's being attacked by his memories. She's like, crap, we're supposed to have this big, huge meeting. She's like trying to officiate the whole thing and doing it without Dalinar and everyone's like, where's Dalinar? And she's trying to put them off and everyone's fighting and she's in the middle of all this chaos and what she latches onto and she makes it into a mantra is bring order from the chaos and she just keeps saying that to herself over and over again and i wonder if this is an indication that she is going to be a knight's radiant like it sort of seems like the an mantra, ideal uh, yeah it does seem like an ideal bring order from the chaos continuing on that line she also says quote being a human was about making sense of chaos finding meaning among the random elements of the world end quote so she has this concept of bringing order from chaos and just it's a repeating thing that keeps coming up her work uh, as a artifabrian Mm -hmm. is also significant as well think about what a fabrial is which just bt dubs uh from word of brandon he has confirmed that all magical technology in the cosmere can be and will be now on referred to as a fabrial 
I don't know if he said will be forever. Well, certainly that the other Cosmere books have yeah, the he magical just, technology and yeah. that can be considered similar to a Fabriel. Yeah. And if Fabriel is a device that in some way is trying to create some order from the, not chaos in a violent way, but chaos in terms of the randomness of spren behavior. Like a Fabriel is kind of capturing a spren and then using that power for a specific purpose that's a little bit of order from chaos right there in that work yeah and creating something that can do that and then also a lot of her work as an artifabrian has to do with history and discovering what the fabrials are because they're not quite sure they're ancient relics and so that sort of aspect of scholarship i think she's doing that same thing that's an excellent point as well let's move on to adolin adolin the firstborn son of evie and dalinar we find out for both of the colon children what their names actually mean uh, both to their parents and based on the linguistic breakdown of their name so adolin means born unto light or one born unto light which i love that's so perfect for adolin because he is just like this bright little sunshine I mean, he's also a total badass as well. Uh, but- oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but I just mean, like, every time you hear a description of Adolin, he's got, like, a smile. He's always, like, joking and yeah. in good humor. He's, like, friendly it's to one everyone. one of the things that annoys Kaladin the most when he first meets yeah, Adolin. Yeah, because he's the opposite of Kaladin. Uh, exactly. And that is, I think... An interesting thing, uh, not that say, saying that Kaladin's name means one born unto darkness, but Kaladin is at least kind of the uh, Eeyore of the group in many ways. They're a foil. Yes, exactly. The book begins with Adolin struggling with his decision to kill Sadius at the end of Words of Radiance. I think that this is something that recurs throughout the book it's easy to forget by the end how focused Adolin was on this how much it was part of his character's conversation but there's even a moment at the very end of the book where it calls back to this so I know it's important I know that Brandon wants us to keep this in mind and some people have even led to speculation about this he at the end of the book is saying because the soldiers from Sadius's army have turned against Thalen City and so now he's killing humans and it's the first time that he can remember in a very long time not killing Parshendi so the people that he's killing with his his shard blade are humans and he has a moment when he's taken aback and he's like man I haven't killed humans in so long it's been Parshendi for years and years like I, I forgot what this is like and then almost like a message maybe from Maya or or just it's kind of jetted into his brain of don't forget about Sadius never forget about Sadius and people have started to speculate that remembering those who hmm. are uh, forgotten or, or remembering those that you hate uh, is an element of 
the edge dancer ideal. And so there's speculation that Adolin threw his dead spren shard blade of Maya, the Maya blade, is going to become a edge dancer. Yeah, I mean, Maya is a cultivation spren, so I think that definitely tracks. But I think also, you know, this idea of Adolin wrestling with a decision that he made in the past, this, you know, violent decision that he's not quite sure if he made the right choice, that's echoing that same theme that we saw with Dalinar. Um, And I think that one of the great elements of Adolin's character is that he is the non-magical one. And it's something that he struggles with, especially as around him and also you know in the book it seems like every other person is getting magical radiant powers yeah which i know we've talked about that before because i really enjoy that arc for adolin um i think in this book he has such a interesting place more than in the past because his stakes are a little bit higher um and I really wanted him to stay the straight man. So I'm a little bit disappointed that he might be coming an edge dancer. But he still has a super interesting storyline with the way he may become an edge dancer. One of the most interesting aspects of Adolin's character is actually revealed when they pass into the cognitive realm at the end of, I think, part three and, and into part four and five. Uh, where the gang of Shallan and Kaladin and Adolin have entered into the cognitive realm and all of a sudden there is a fully formed Sill who's hanging out in the cognitive realm as a honor spren and there's a fully formed yet well a a fully formed pattern and another spren a spren a female spren who has her eyes imagine like a painting that has then had the eyes scratched out or clawed out it's very shalashian it's very shalashian that was actually my first like thought like yeah me too why is shalash not here but it, it did just kind of seem like a similar description to the way that Shalashes she's been scratching out the eyes destroying. of all of her paintings. Yeah, and so what is Shalash trying to do in re- like so there's something there that yeah. Maya has scratched out eyes and Shalash is going around trying to scratch out her own eyes as depicted in paintings. So Maya is the dead spren of Adolin Shardblade. He is bonded to Maya because he's bonded to his Shardblade. And their relationship really begins to develop a lot in this part four of Oathbringer. But we've seen this relationship in the past as well. This is not the first time that it has been noted that Adolin has a special relationship, a different relationship to his shard I would say even prior to this, there was like some ticklings in the back of my mind that he might be able to uh, bond to his blade in a different way because he treats it very reverently. He talks to it like he's very respectful of his blade. And we actually see this dead cultivation spren 
uh, come to Adolin's aid. Adolin is actually killed by one of the fused, um, or he gets as close to death as you can before being rescued via Renarin. Uh, but Adolin is fighting one of the fused, and he's run through with a spear. I think he's he, it's a spear versus knife fight. Oh, uh, yeah, and that's not a good fight to be in. Uh, and Adolin has this moment when he's like preparing the fight, and he's like, I've practiced this with Zahel. And then it like cuts aside, and it's like, seven out of the ten times I practice it, I died. But, you know, we're going to give this a shot. And then he gets run right through uh, with the spear and he falls down. And as he's about to be struck for the final time, for the final blow, Maya, because remember, they're still in the cognitive realm. So Maya jumps on the back of the fuse and starts attacking the fuse like with her fist and stuff and and gives enough time for, I think it's Shallan to show up and pull Adolin away. Then eventually Adolin is rescued by Renarin, um, and that wound is healed, and he can continue his battle in Thalen City. But Maya's, you know, willingness to fight for Adolin in that moment, uh, I thought was interesting. And then, of course, as soon as he's back in the the physical realm, he's able to summon Maya once again. So there's definitely something going on between Adolin and his sword. At the end, Adolin declines the throne. They need to find a new king because Elokar is dead. dead. Yep. Adolin's like, oh, not really about it. But at the same time, he has a huge character moment when Shallan and himself get married. Yeah. And it's so we, we start. We start with a wedding. Opening. We end with a wedding. Exactly. And I think that this one was beautiful as well for obviously Shallan, when we talk about her, it's going to be a little bit more significant for her in terms of character development and what her character was dealing with, all the the self-doubt. But I think that this is also solidifying a little bit of Adolin's character as well and kind of him accepting the future self or the future that he will become as this kind of you know he's not a he's not the playboy anymore who's yeah. going around to date like all the different girls and can't settle on anyone that's how he was originally introduced in way of kings and now he and Shalon are making this decision together uh, and are going to you know go forward as really i mean i i do love Dalinar and Navani as a couple, but I, I think Shallan and Adolin as a couple is just a very, very strong relationship and yeah. a very uh, complimentary relationship in a really beautiful way. Absolutely. I think they are really sweet together. Let's go over to brother of Adolin, Renarin, Colin. Ooh, such a big character in this book. Renarin developed... Or, or I would say almost like we uncovered. Like, Renarin is the diamond in the rough. Yeah. I mean, I would say he's very well 
written, right? Like, Renarin as a character is kind of always in the background of things. He's very quiet. You don't really notice him. And as you're reading the books, I would say that's true. He's always in the background. You don't really notice him. And then in this book, we see a lot more of him. We get to know him a little bit better as he is going through this journey of trying to decide who he is and come into his own and be a little bit more confident about who he is and what his skills are. We also learn what Renarin's name means, and Renarin was named by his mother, Evie. Well-intentioned, Evie, trying to make sense of the Alethi language, which is not her native language, and her husband has left her. She gives birth by herself, so she's trying to come up with a name in not her native language for her child. But understanding that the name... And the meaning behind the name is important in Alethi society. So once again, just pointing out like how she hard, tries so yeah, hard. She tries so hard. And the way that the description is given is that what Evie chooses to name Renarin or the meaning behind it is ridiculous in the Alethi mindset or language. It doesn't follow the right it pattern. doesn't make sense yeah and it because one of the subsets of the name that she uses isn't even alethi <laughs> yes so she combines part of her language with the and it just from dalinar's perspective the name is an embarrassment but what it actually means i think is important so renarin means one who was born unto himself there is something there in that description that hints at, I think, both Renarin's character, not flaw as like a bad thing, but the the struggle that Renarin has to deal with. But I think it's also hinting at his ability as a Night Radiant, as a truth watcher. Uh, and I think it's something because it was so specifically pointed out and attention was brought to it, and because Dalinar thought it was stupid, I think that as the reader, we should have extra attention on the meaning of Renarin's name, as well as some information that we'll bring up in a moment about his character. So, <laughs> one who is born unto himself is Renarin. What were you saying, though, about how he was attempting to do more things and... and try to not assert himself but to be more comfortable with himself as a part of this colon family yeah he's like trying to find his place um because he's never really fit in he doesn't fit into the traditional alethi society which all of the men are very warlike and aggressive and assertive that's not his personality one two in the book, they call it, he has a blood weakness. We find out that what that means is that he has epilepsy. Um, and there's also hints that he may suffer from autism as well. I think that the epilepsy was something that was more and better understood in earlier books. But the connection to autism is really something that I suppose re going back and reading more, maybe I could see the hints in previous books, but it just became much more apparent is that the kind of way that Renarin perceives the world and how he 
understands things is somewhere on the autistic spectrum. I don't want to say... Yeah, he talks about... How he doesn't really understand what people's facial expressions mean. He has a hard time reading people. He doesn't really like to be touched. I think that a better description may be uh, someone who is suffering from Asperger's uh, syndrome, which, like, technically speaking, doctors would say, like, that's just one part of the spectrum that autism can present as. Um, and then other people will say that it's an entirely different classification. So... I don't want to necessarily say that he has autism because there are people in the world who are like, that's not autism. Well, I'm not even saying he does. I'm just saying that is something that he says specifically. That's how he describes himself. And so it may be that that is something going on with him. Absolutely. And I think that with his own physical and mental weaknesses his character has always developed in the backgrounds and in the shadows and he has a moment for example when he is trying to go to a meeting of scholars and most of the scholars with a couple of exceptions about the ardents but many of the scholars are are female in alethi society and so he goes to this meeting that's led by females and that's occupied by females yeah and i don't even know if there are any male ardents but there's renarin in the background of this meeting well and that's one of the things that he's struggling with so he like tried for so long to be a warrior he tries to be a bridgeman to see if he fits in there people are always telling him oh you should be an ardent but he doesn't really feel like he maybe doesn't want to be an ardent either people say oh maybe you should be a scholar because you're so smart but that's not really a thing that dudes do so we see him taking this chance and showing up to this meeting which is a big step because like you said everyone else there is a woman and a scholar and he's sort of standing out in this very conspicuous way um and And then yeah and then dalinar walks in to that same meeting and goes and stands next to renarin as if it's a 100% totally normal thing to do for Dalinar Colin to be showing up a, at a meeting of f- female scholars. It's not, of course, and we discover that this is a kindness that Dalinar is doing for Renarin to, in, in my opinion, this is part of the relationship that Dalinar and Renarin are shown to have in Oathbringer of Renarin is like impossibly kind to his father when his father was impossibly mean and you know wanted an impossibility which basically we wanted his wife back uh, and kind of took that out on his young son Renarin and now this act is part of Dalinar's attempt to make things right uh, with Renarin by showing that you know he can he has like his father's blessing uh at this yeah this i mean i think it's like good parenting moment of him finally saying like okay i have to accept that you're not going to be a warrior like me or a duelist like adolin like you're a different person you're your own person you're gonna do your own thing and he chooses to be supportive of his son maybe for the first time that we see of course this is hiding a darkness that is growing in Renarin. 
and that is becoming more and more apparent with Renarin that is not going to fully be unveiled until the end of the book or, or near the end of the book where Renarin is exploring. He is reading and going through all of the little messages that were left in Urthiru, uh, and he is dealing with his own ability as a truth watcher that is at least in some way giving him some type of future sight. And towards the end of the book, Renarin has this moment where he is seen by Yasna to be a threat, to be a danger, because what Yasna realizes is that the spren Renarin has bonded is not a normal spren, a spren that has been corrupted. And Yasna believes that this corruption has led Renarin down the path of being corrupted by odium. So Yasna sees Renarin... I don't know if she knows that. She just knows that he is bonded to a corrupted spren, and, like, that sounds bad. Well, and then <laughs> she takes it upon herself to assassinate Renarin because of yeah, that danger. So, I like, mean... it's not, like, he's bonded a corrupted spren, and it's probably not that big a deal. Yasna is, like... Odium is corruption. Badness is corruption. Like, corruption cannot be allowed to stand. I have to go kill my nephew. No. Cousin. Yeah, my cousin. Uh, And so she's walking up to stab him in the back, and it's something that he has foreseen. He has seen his own death at the hands of Yasna. He has also seen, and this is significant, he has also seen his father's corruption at the hands of Odium. What Renarin witnesses is the exact moment that plays out with Odium revealing the full weight of Dalinar's horrors and then saying, it's not your fault, Dalinar, you can just give me your pain and follow me instead. But from Renarin's perspective and his vision, Dalinar accepts and becomes Odium's champion and leads the nine shadows, the nine unmade against humanity as Odium's victor. And as Renarin experiences this moment of watching his own death come upon him with Yasna, they are going to like meet eyes, lock eyes, have a flashback to when they were young children, uh, and Yasna is going to refuse to kill him, which then allows Renarin to understand that his future sight can be and is wrong and incorrect. After... Yasna and Renarin have their coming together moment. He, we, the next time we see him, he's out on the battlefield. He comes to the rescue of his brother, heals him. Um, and then this is really the bravest slash most action oriented we ever see Renarin. He just dives into this battle with a thunderclass and this is when we see him just literally get flattened like a pancake and then pop back up and keep fighting. And I think it's pretty cool and exciting to see Renarin just really go for it. 
Yeah, and we said this briefly in an earlier episode, but that is also the example of the greatest amount of healing that we have seen in the Cosmere. So from our knowledge right now, Renarin Kolin is the most invincible person in the Cosmere yeah, as long that, as he has Stormlight. As long as he has Stormlight, <laughs> I've seen nothing that compares. We know that there are a bunch of characters that have a ability of either long life or healing or resistant to disease or anything like that, but we have seen nothing, even presented by people like Hoyd, that can compete with being instantaneously flattened by a boulder and then also instantaneously healing yourself and popping up like nothing happened. I mean, that is beyond even the the healing that we've seen from someone like Miles, uh, who, from... Uh, I guess it's, like, similar to Miles. Yeah, I would say he's the only... He's the closest person to demonstrating that ability. I wonder if Lyft would be able to do the same thing, though. I don't Since think she, so. she also has the progression surge, we've seen her well, bring back other people from the dead, so... Yes. We have not seen... Eh, I mean, she did bring someone back from the dead. Yeah. But, like, what was the the specific wound that he had? I mean, this is like a full body, just like... I'm just saying, since they flattened. do share a surge, I wonder if we'll see... At least a similar thing from her in the yeah, future. I think that it's an interesting thing to keep in mind is that how is Renarin's powers going to develop over time as he has this corrupted spren that he is bonded to? Is he a Night Radiant? He doesn't think so. He, he doesn't think that he can be. Is there going to be another Truth Watcher? Is Renarin going to be a bigger player uh, when it comes to the Battle of Odium? I think so. Obviously. (laughs) And we're going to now transition over to the ultimate badass of the group. You know, some people like their Kaladins, some people like their Dalinars, but there's no one who comes close in my perspective uh, in the Battle of Phelan City as Miss Yasna Colin. Yeah, she is pretty awesome. Um, we don't see a ton of her in this book, but we do learn a little bit more about her past and her history. There are whispers of a time in the past where I couldn't tell if she like contracted an illness or something, but at some point she is considered crazy by her family and she is like locked away. And she mentions like a lesson that she learned that people that she loves can hurt her. Total bummer of a lesson, but yep. Got to learn that at some point. (laughs) The, Development of like her family relationship. Remember, she is the daughter of Queen Navani and King Gavilar, uh, and so should have given us all hints about where things were going, uh, but it definitely did not, because I've been so distracted by Yasna as the scholar and the heretic. Yeah, I I forgot about this aspect of her character 
as well. But at the end, it brought me back to when we first meet her. Well, not first, but when we see her sort of backstory at the very beginning of Words of Radiance, when she's meeting with the assassins and her whole objective is to protect her family. Like she does a bunch of stuff behind the scenes to try to protect her family from anyone who might hurt it. And that objective comes back at the end of, well, really throughout Oathbringer, I would say. Um, she both tries to protect Shalon and also tries to protect her family from Shalon since Shalon is kind of going a little bit crazy. But I think specifically in that moment with Renarin, first she goes to assassinate him in that intent of, I need to protect my family, and Renarin is a threat to my family. Um, she ends up recognizing their similarities in that they both are sort of ostracized and seen as outsiders, and she, like you said, remembers her childhood with him, and so she decides not to kill him and tells him, like, we're going to figure it out. And that's a pretty good team to have if you're trying to figure something out. Like, two of the smartest characters. If anyone can do it, they can. And not only is Yasna intelligent and, you know, has that moment with Renarin showing their familial bond, but she is also one of the most powerful Knights Radiant, I would say, maybe outside of Dalinar, that we have seen in battle now. Yeah, because um, she's one of the most practiced with her powers. She seems like quite a master. And I think that this is significant. Someone might have pointed it out on the Reddit that, you know, one of the reasons why Yasna had to, quote unquote, die uh, in Words of Radiance, at the beginning of Words of Radiance, is because she was kind of overpowered compared to the other Knights Radiance. Is that like all the problems they had, when you compare it to what Yazan does in the Battle of Thalen City, like everybody's problems in Words of Radiance just seemed small. Like if Yazan was there, they would all be solved basically. And so so the other characters could develop in Words of Radiance. We had to kind of take Yazna out of it a little bit. But now she's in a position where she, I would still say she's ahead of the game a little bit, but she's definitely more on even footing. Yeah, we've like gotten to a point past a lot of her past scholarship. So she is kind of trying to figure everything out now as well. However, when it comes to the fighting that she is able to demonstrate, especially she says something very interesting. Uh, while... Dalinar has his moment bringing together the three realms. Yasna is basically superpowered. Uh, she says that she can see into the cognitive realm without trying, as if her vision is just kind of bouncing back and forth or kind of, yeah, overlaid with the cognitive realm. It doesn't last, and it seems to be something that was most strongly felt when Honor's perpendicularity was open and then fades as her spren Ivory describes the realms falling back apart or or uh, moving back apart. 
but when they are together, she is basically like superpowered Yasna, and she is able to effortlessly kill numerous fuse, which is like a wave of the hand. She turns their souls into smoke. Uh, she says that, you know, in the past that would have been difficult and their souls would have resisted, but now it was so easy. She barely, it was like swatting away a fly, uh, to kill these. Yeah. And she's like doing multiple things at once. She's like having a normal conversation and then she's just like, phew, and killing people. She rebuilds the wall that was breached of Thalen city and Adolin, as she's doing all this crazy stuff and killing Fused and whatnot, Adolin sees her and says this, quote, A glow faded around her, different from the smoke of her stormlight, like geometric shapes outlining her, end quote. Super interesting. I definitely think that it was worthy of mentioning that is that some type of resonance point going on with Yasna? Is it some type of visual representation of her knight's radiant powers? Is something else going on? There's a lot of speculation on the internet that this is shard plate, like original shard plate. Yes. Which I think is like a fair call. Yeah, I think that that is like how okay so we know that for Kaladin the windspren will become his shard plate we know that uh, I think it's like pretty heavy speculation that the lesser spren like you have the higher spren form their blade and the lesser spren forms their shard plate oh I haven't read that at all I I'm pretty confident that that is the speculation in the moment is that that's the relationship for all the different orders is that the there's like the higher spren and that they bond to and then there's the lesser spren. So what I'm thinking here is that these geometric shapes that were outlining Yasna could possibly be the lesser spren that were like popping around her in geometric shapes. I don't know what spren that would be. Yeah, I spren can see of that. mathematics or something. Yeah. Um, that was like trying to build into or was on the edge of building into shard plate, which is mm. fourth ideal. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. So I think that that's the best guess, in my opinion, of what those shapes are. But I'm also interested if it could be something else entirely. Yeah, me too. And then, of course. At the end, Adolin says, no, no, I don't want to be king, but you know who would be great as a monarch? Yasna! So Yasna becomes our queen, which on one hand, I kind of think she is so amazing on the battlefield. Like, do you really want to combine her to a throne? But she's going to be an awesome queen for sure. Yeah, I think the aspect of making her queen is obviously something that she personally didn't want as a character uh and it seems to just like be one of those things that fits like you didn't know that it was gonna fit and you didn't expect it to but at the end it's just like well of course yasna should be queen i mean her brother 
was the king. Right. So he dies, obviously. Yasna Yay, should be patriarchy. Con- well, yeah, I mean, you can definitely look at it that way of just like, no, I never even expected Yasna to be. But I think that that is an aspect of Rashar that, or Elithkar specifically. Yeah. That is just like good writing in, in terms of Brandon is just like the obvious choice was always Yasna. And yet there was like all this bickering and battling right. about like who's going to be Yasna's the king. And Yasna is older than Elokar, so it's like really she probably should have been monarch before Elokar, but you know. Yeah, and like no disrespect to Elokar, we like him as a character and his unfortunate untimely demise was very sad, but obviously Yasna Yasna's is much better superior. suited to yeah, the job. I mean, just thinking about all of her abilities in terms of her intelligence and her scholarship but how that plays into things that have been mentioned before but like she's not a lazy disheveled scholar that only cares about her work no she's a master of you can call it manipulation or you just call it politics but like the way that she gets things done and is able to move from kingdom to kingdom uh it's just she is a perfect politician in many ways and a perfect fit to be queen i'm really excited to see what happens with her obviously you know she's not going to be super independent queen because there is no kingdom that she now rules over colinar has fallen uh, so it, she's really just like a queen in name uh, at this point because Dalinar is going to keep leading the armies. So I'm interested to see where her character goes specifically as queen. Still a significant choice, I think, because of her resistance to religion. Do you think it's going to, like we talked about earlier with Dalinar, it's going to have like some problems Oh, yeah, definitely. And create, oh, well, you had this sinful marriage. You have Dalinar proclaiming that honor is dead, and now you have the heretic queen. Yeah, exactly. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if there is another, like, religious war on their hands where initially, you know, the Ardentia came to power and then the regular people had to kind of say, hey man, back off, you need to chill out. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a new rise of the Ardentia and other religious groups saying, wait, 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 wait. You can't just overthrow our religion and just bring in this heretic to be queen who doesn't even believe in the religion and you've got, you know, Dalinar just spewing off all kinds of crazy things. I could definitely see that happening. I think that's a good call, especially because while the blowback to Dalinar's wedding and his disagreement with his personal ardent was made such a big deal in the beginning of the book, it didn't have a huge payoff or like, what was the yeah. downside? Yeah, like it exactly. It was set up, but... The storyline was started, but it didn't really get resolved in the end. And we see Yasna and Dalinar relating on that aspect with Yasna saying, look, they're going to call you whatever they're going to call you and they're going to define you by their own definitions, but you are the one who defines yourself. Um, And so just that connection between them sort of indicates she may be sort of carrying on that, not fight, but tension. 
I think that's a whole bunch for a single episode. We have obviously not got to all our characters. We got, you know, the big Kaladin and Shallan as well as several others to talk about. But for a single episode, I think this is pretty good. We, You may have noticed as a listener that we did have kind of a running theme for this episode. So this was like the Colin family that we <laughs> looked at today. And we will look at many of the other characters next week. Any closing thoughts before you take us away? Go ahead and check us out on Reddit, Facebook, Twitter. We are in all the places as Cosmere Convo. Been getting a lot of super interesting, great comments from you guys lately. Thank you so much for interacting with us. And until next time, life before death, strength before weakness, journey before destination.